I think it's getting even trickier, right, with it's an algorithm that Facebook is providing or Instagram <laughs> is providing, right? And, and right. those algorithms don't care about your well-being. They just want your eyeballs to pay as much attention as possible. So you better believe they're going to find the best vacation picks, you know, the most salient negative things out there. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, again, people's anxiety increases when they do things like look at a lot of Facebook and so on. You can do these randomized controlled designs, which are the sort of scientists' best strategy, where you kind of randomly assign people to have more Facebook in their life or less Facebook. And what you find is people's well-being moves around accordingly. Like those news feeds that are picking up the most salient comparisons aren't making us happier. If anything, they're making us feel a little worse. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It is a great day to be alive. You knew that too. For you newbies, this is Crazy Money. It's a podcast on which we explore the connection between money and happiness and work and meaning. I'm Paul Ollinger, as I just told you, and as it says on your podcast app, I don't know why you'd be questioning that. What's my background? Well, I worked in the corporate world for 15 years. I made a little money at a company called Facebook, and now I do stand-up comedy, and I write, and I do this podcast. Why? Because it's worth doing, and I really enjoy doing it, and once you get enough money, that's the kind of stuff you should be focused on. Today's guest is Dr. Lori Santos. She is a professor of psychology at Yale University. She also holds many other offices there. Her accolades are far too many to mention. However, one of the most interesting things about Lori, at least professionally, is that she teaches the most popular course in the history of Yale University. And that goes like way back, way earlier than the 1970s. So however long you've been alive, Yale University is hundreds of years older than you are. And she teaches the most popular class in that multi-century history. It's called Psychology and the Good Life. And it's all about helping undergraduates understand what are those things that lead to ultimate happiness. These are the most gifted and accomplished 18 to 22-year-olds in the world, many of them. And they are freaked out with anxiety and FOMO and the desire to accomplish. And this course is an attempt to really analyze what leads to happiness in the long run. So we'll talk with Lori in just a moment. But before we do, I want to tell you a few things about, well, me, obviously. Real quick, I've got shows coming up this week, Thursday, April 22nd at Mad Life Stage and Studios. This is me headlining Name on the Marquee. Come out if you're anywhere in the Northwest Atlanta area. I'll be there. It'll be fun. The openers are awesome. It's going to be a great, great night. Also be at American Spirit Works ASW on May 6th. Check my website, paulollinger.com for more dates. I also have some pretty fun announcements coming up about show dates that are not quite official yet, but they're going to be wacky. I can't wait. Also, I want to say welcome, good morrow, and welcome to new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Facebook group. Yes, there is such a group. It's on a platform called Facebook. Perhaps you've heard of it. Links to that Facebook users group are in the show notes, and here are some new members. Robin Steinbrenner, she is not related to George Steinbrenner, the former and dead owner of the New York Yankees. She is my cousin. Casey Beal, Russell Smith, Colleen Pollard, hola, Colleen. Calvin Cotter, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to go to Kenya on safari, you would be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't look up Cotter's, C-O-T-T-A-R-S. They run amazing, beautiful, well-appointed, and thoughtful camps in the most beautiful part of the world. All right, let's discuss Dr. Lori Santos. So this is an encore episode. For those of you who have not been listening since day one, 
We've made over 105 episodes of Crazy Money, original episodes going back to, well, the first ones were recorded November of 2018. We started posting them in February of 2019. This episode is from September of 2019. But there's so much good stuff back in the vaults, I want to bring some of it forward and share with you something you may have missed. When I do that, I re-listen to the podcast, and I'm often delighted to hear how interesting the conversations were and how on point they were. This one is a phenomenal example of that. Dr. Lori Santos teaches the course, Psychology and the Good Life, but she's also done deep, deep research into the science of brain chemistry and happiness, not just with human beings, but with dogs and with primates. And some of the lessons she's learned and some of the things she brings together aggregates in her new podcast, well, it was new two years ago almost, called The Happiness Lab. She has a lot of the same goals I do here at Crazy Money, which is to help make herself and her audience smarter about those long-lasting things that bring to happiness. Why is that important? Well, because our brains don't really know what will make us happy. We think that more money, more fame, maybe some quiet, the desire to be alone, that those things will make us happy, but it turns out our brains are often wrong. That what we really want is better connections with the people around us, more gratitude, and not accolades, but doing more meaningful work. And there's never been a more important time for her to be spreading this important message on college campuses because rates of students' anxiety, depression, and yes, even suicidal thoughts are at an all-time high. I was being asked recently by a business professor, you know, what would you like to talk about? I think if I could talk about anything to young business students, it's why you should study philosophy, religion, and popular culture, and what that can teach us about the real sources of happiness. Yeah, there's lessons from the movie Jerry Maguire to be taken, because she won't complete you, nor will money. Anyway, let's talk about Lori Santos. Lori Santos, Dr. Lori Santos, is a cognitive scientist, professor of psychology, and director of Yale's Comparative Cognition Lab. Her course, Psychology in the Good Life, is the most popular in Yale's history. She's also the host of the Happiness Lab. I know you will find her insights into uh, why does a monkey get mad when he's eating a cucumber and another monkey is eating a grape. I know you'll find that to be very interesting. I also know you'll find interesting her insights into why silver medalists at the Olympics often frown on the medal podium. Why would you be sad? You just won an Olympic medal. Well, she'll talk about that. As are most guests on Crazy Money, Lori's achievements are spectacular. She earned her AB, AM, and PhD from Harvard University, and her list of accolades and publishing credits run, no kidding, over 20 pages, so I'm not going to list them. Suffice to say, she is both wildly accomplished and very, very easy to talk to. I know you will enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lori Santos. Dr. Lori Santos, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. So among many other things that you do in your life, you teach a class at Yale called Psychology and the Good Life, which is the most popular course in the history of Yale. Is there a correlation between its popularity and the fact that anxiety and depression among college kids is at an all-time high? Well, we don't know that for sure, but it kind of certainly seems to be the case. This was the first time this class was ever taught. And like a typical class, you'd expect like 40 or 50 students to show up. I didn't mm -hmm. think I'd be teaching in a concert hall to a quarter of the students at Yale. 
So, I mean, I think students are voting with their feet. I think students don't like this culture of feeling anxious and depressed all the time. I think they really wanted to do something about it. What's different about college campuses or the young people on them today than 30 years ago? Are people just diagnosed more or are their problems very different? Is their lifestyle very different than it was back in the good old uncomplicated 1980s and 90s? You know, I grew up in those uncomplicated days and it wasn't, you know, like it was this wonderful, you know, psychological paradise or anything. But I mean, when you look at the rates of depression and anxiety on campuses today, like it feels really crazy and really different. So right now, nationally, over 40 percent of college students report being too depressed to function most of the time. So over 40 percent of students, over 60 percent say that they feel anxious and very lonely most of the time. And 12 percent of college students nationally say they've seriously considered suicide in the last year. So, like, things weren't perfect back in the day, but they were much better. And your question is kind of the million-dollar question. Like, what is different? You know, what has changed in the last 20 years that has caused this mental health crisis to kind of skyrocket? And I think we don't really know the answer. You know, they're the usual culprits where people port to things like technology. You know, there's social media now, and there wasn't in the 90s. That's Um, right. Blame it all on Facebook. Okay. Exactly. But the strange thing is that they're not great data. I mean, social media is not fantastic, right? It does increase odds ratios of things like depression and anxiety, but it's not the magic bullet everyone thinks of. I mean, I think it's just that we're focused on the wrong stuff. I mean, just in silly ways, right? Like in the college that I work at Yale, you know, I'll walk into the dining hall and the students aren't talking to each other. They're all sitting Hmm. there with their big headphones on, you know, playing around on a screen. And it's like just that kind of dining hall chit chat They don't have that in the same way that I had it back in the day. And so Mm. so I think there's lots of subtle societal changes that we're not tracking, but they all collectively might be having a huge impact on our well-being. Okay, I'm sure we'll get back to some of those topics, but I want to take a step back and talk about your research. According to Wikipedia, your research, and of course, that's the truth that uh, the, (laughs) the closest to divine truth that any of us can find in this life. According to Wikipedia, your research explores the evolutionary origins of the human mind by comparing the cognitive abilities of humans and non-human animals, including primates and canines. How does the study of dogs and monkeys relate to human happiness? Well, you know, there is not a direct connection. I mean, the happiness stuff emerged out of interacting with students, not necessarily my work. But I think the spot where it connects is all the work that we do with animals is really trying to get at this question of what makes the human mind special. And in particular, these kinds of things, looking at what are some of the biases that might be built in over evolutionary time that are messing us up. And in some of my early work, I tried to see whether monkeys were as bad at using money as humans are. Spoiler, (laughs) spoiler, they are. They're just as loss averse. They're just as bad at dealing with risk. And they're just Mm. as likely to rationalize their decisions as humans. So that's kind of, you know, separate conversation. But basically, the idea is that we were doing all this work with animals showing, hey, some of these biases that make us make bad decisions and might make us unhappy, seem to be shared with non-human animals too. And that might mean that they're built in, which is a problem because it means if we want to do better in terms of monetary decisions or decisions that affect our happiness, we need to like understand how the mind works so that we're not as messed up by all these biases that might be built in. So we'll dig into each specific topic in a bit, but let's just say this podcast was two minutes long because I don't have time to go to Yale and take your amazing class What can I do and what can our listeners do to live the happy and the good life? I think the two-minute version is to realize that your mind lies to you about what makes you happy, that we have all these intuitions about the things we should be doing, and by and large, a lot of those intuitions are wrong. And that's why listening to the long version of the podcast is better, because the science can really (laughs) teach teach us what you should be doing to feel happier. And the fast version is 
It's things like taking time for social connection, thinking about people who are not yourself, and spending time being mindful, just being in the present moment. But Lori, if we finish quickly, I'll have time to go do something else that will make me happier. That's true. But the good news is that conversations like this, where we're actually socially connecting, is probably making you feel better, too. So six of one, half a dozen of the other. So. So let's talk about why that is. I mean, we think that money or fame or recognition or someone else's love or affirmation will make us happy, but it's been proven that these things don't. At least that they don't make us as happy as we think. You know, we think that's all there is, but that's just not right. So why do we pursue these things? That's kind of an important question. I think we get this sense that doing more is always going to make us happier. Money, for example, we see people with more money and it feels like, oh, if I had more of that, like that would be much better. And for those of us that don't have much money, it's true. You know, if you're living below the poverty line, you get a little bit more. That feels good. Problem is that it levels off and we don't realize that. And so you get people who we've talked to in our podcast who are earning, you know, $50 million and they feel like, oh, I'm just not there yet. If I just get a little <laughs> bit more, you know, mm-hmm. then I'll then I'll be good. So I think we develop these bad strategies over time, but we also have dumb features of our mind that mess us up. You know, the reason $50 million doesn't make you happy is that you get used to it. You know, just like every new gadget you get, you know, in a couple weeks, it's just this boring thing that's around you. You can kind of get used to having lots of money, having a great relationship. And that means that the happiness you get at the start of getting that thing isn't the same as the happiness you'll get months in or years into having it. But those same instincts that moderate or calibrate our happiness, is that the word that cap our happiness level? Mm -hmm. These instincts are also the same instincts that keep us alive and keep us from wanting to die when terrible things happen to us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to be a creature that always strives for more. And I think that's where some of these intuitions come from, right? It's like more, 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 more. Like that's a smart thing for evolution to build in, not because it makes us happy, but because it makes us you know, constantly striving for more. And who knows, maybe there's more out there to get if we just got some energy. Like natural selection isn't trying to make us happy as individuals. It's just trying to make us survive and reproduce, <laughs> right? But in the age of plenty, like, you know, natural selection was trying to get us to get more money if we were earning, you know, like $5,000 a year. But then once you get to a certain point, you can kind of chill out. But natural selection doesn't realize that. It can't just shut these intuitions off. And then do we start looking for other types of rewards to get the brain feelies that we were getting from the previous stimuli? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if you ask people the number one thing they think would make a person happier, would make them happy, they often say, oh, I want to change my life circumstances. I need a new job. I need more money. I need to move. I need a bigger house. So we're constantly looking for the next thing. And Mm. when we first get it, it feels great. But then we get used to that. But then we don't develop the intuition like, well, maybe the new thing wasn't what I needed. Maybe I need to do something else. We think, oh, I just <laughs> I just must need another new thing. And that was the fascinating thing in the podcast, talking to like people who interact with people who are super, super wealthy. Uh, we had this researcher, Clay Cockrell. He's a psychotherapist for the incredibly wealthy on the mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. And so he only deals with people who earn more than $50 million. And they think, you know, I have $50 million. I'm not happy, which, you know, bracketed is already kind of crazy. But I have $50 million. I'm not happy. So the problem must be I just don't have enough yet. I just need a little bit more. Mm. But then, you know, you always feel like you need more. So you're just on this treadmill or what psychologists call this hedonic treadmill mm-hmm. where you're constantly running and getting used to the pace but not realizing you're not getting anywhere. Yeah, I interviewed a guy named Brad Klotz, who is a financial psychologist for the ultra-wealthy also. And his podcast episode will air on the 27th of August. This one is dropping on the 24th of September. So it will already have been out, but it is not out yet as Mm -hmm. of today. And one of the things he told me was that 
the rich have the same existential problems as the rest of us. They know how to pay their bills, but they're still looking for meaning in their life. And the one disadvantage they have is that they can't pretend that more money will make them happier. That's right. Yeah. They can't delude themselves with that. Yeah. Or it's much harder to, right? Because they've seen the, the results of this. <laughs> you know, and, and they have other problems, right? I mean, it, it's called the 1% for a reason. Not many people are in that situation. So not only do you have all this money and you're not happy, but it's actually hard to connect with most of the people on the planet who are way less wealthy than you are. You know, so they end up being more lonely than people of average incomes. They end up feeling less trustworthy of other people. If you have $50 million and somebody wants to start hanging out with you, your instant reaction isn't like, oh, I must be an interesting, fun person to hang out with. You're thinking, what are they trying to get out of me? You know, mm. are they just using me for my money? And that can just kind of feel yucky socially. So you started the podcast that launches on September 24th, which would be today for the listener if they're listening on the day this drops. It's called The Happiness Lab. Why did you want to do a podcast? Well, we taught this live class at Yale that you know one out of every four Yale students showed up to take. And it was like, huh, like, I guess people want to hear more about happiness. Mm -hmm. And so then we said, all right, well, I'm a dorky professor. Let's put the version of this class up for free, like so anybody can take it. And so that whole version of that class is up on Coursera.org. But, you know, lo and behold, not everybody has time in their life to take a whole Yale class online. <laughs> um, but people still want to know, you know, what they can do to be happier. And so, I mean, as you've seen from doing this podcast, like, you know, podcasts are a thing. Like people have time to listen to these things and get some quick tips. And so we thought, all right, let's just boil this whole Ivy League class down into a set of tips that people can listen to in a half hour and 45 minutes and just kind of give people a little bit of a way to learn about this stuff without taking a class, but in a way where they get some of the science so they understand how this stuff works, but also get some tips where they can put these scientific insights into practice. I'd love to go back to Yale for a year or two. I think that'd be amazing. Well, that's the thing is like why it's so striking to see these students who are, you know, many of them just seem so unhappy. It's like you're 19, you've kind of hit the college lottery, you're at Yale University, you have your whole life ahead mm -hmm. of you. And you're lonely, you know, two thirds of you are anxious, like a tenth of you are probably contemplating suicide right now. Like, God. that's crazy. So yeah. I, I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't, I, I, I guess there's a narrative we all construct for our, our past and everything. I don't remember feeling like that in college. I do remember having to make trade-offs in terms of like, well, if I spend all this time reading this one thing, I'm not going to have time to dive into this other thing, whether that was another course or a party that I wasn't going to get to go to. And I usually chose the party, by the way, but <laughs> it seems like the course load or just everything that's going on in their lives is just that much more amped up than it was. Yeah, I think that there's a sense that everything is more amped up. And I think that comes from something that they face that we don't face right now or that we didn't face in college, which is all this stuff on social media. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you took the opportunity cost the other direction and you didn't go to the party, and you stayed home and studied, you know, you didn't have Snapchat telling you in a moment-by-moment -moment detail, every amazing thing you're missing out on. Right. Um, you know, so the students talk about this FOMO, this fear of missing out, and I think it's real for them in a way that we just didn't have it broadcast to us back in the 90s. And that is powerful. You know, there's so much research showing that our objective circumstances don't really affect our happiness that much. It's the circumstances we're comparing against other people. You know, so it's not the amount of money you have that makes you happy. It's your amount of money relative to other people. And you see this in so many different domains. Like the quickest way to make somebody unhappy with their sex life is to tell them that other people in their age range are having more sex than them. You could be perfectly happy <laughs> with your sex life, but you find out other people are having more sex, you're like, oh my God, my sex life is miserable. And that's true for sex lives. It's true for salaries. It's true for grades. It's true for how many parties you go to and so on. And so 
again, I think this is just part of human nature. In fact, you know, the work we did with the monkeys show, the monkeys care what other monkeys are getting and they won't like eating a delicious cucumber if they find out other monkeys have something more delicious like a grape. Like, mm. you know, this is built in by mm. many years of evolution. But, you know, the monkeys don't have apps that are showing them what other people are getting in real time and apps that are curated like Instagram to look more awesome than they even need to be. Right. That right. This was. It's not even a real comparison. I mean, you're comparing your reality warts and all to somebody else's curated version of what their life should look like in their brain. And this is the thing, another spot where our mind kind of lies to us is like, we know that rationally, Mm -hmm. but when you scroll through the feed, it's hard to remember that those images you saw could be photoshopped or that that person's posting the party pics, but not, you know, the four nights in the week that they stayed in and studied for econ midterm. Like, we know it rationally, but it's really hard to wrap our mind around it. And this is one of the things we teach and we talk about in the podcast is just all these data showing that, you know, we think we get it. But in practice, we don't get it at all. And just like a couple funny data points. One is people who watch TV more often, especially people who watch TV about kind of reality shows and all these rich folks, Mm -hmm. they actually think their real income buys less than people who watch less TV. In fact, people who watch TV spend on average $4 more than people who don't watch TV a lot. And it's because if you watch lots of TV, you see lots of rich people, you just feel like you need to start keeping up with the Joneses. You can't help it, you know. There's also these lovely data showing that when we make predictions about all the good and bad things in other people's lives, we have this bias to downplay the, the bad things in other people's lives. So nobody out there got a bad grade like me. Nobody out there was home studying like me. But we upgrade all the good things. So more people than me went to good parties and so on. And so it's not just that we mispredict. We mispredict in exactly the direction that will make us feel the worst. Yeah, I I can see that. I've had the pleasure of listening to three of your episodes because I'm super important and get early access to this kind of thing. So I want to dive into some of the themes. All three were very interesting, but uh, one of them was called Silver Lining, and it's, it's about the silver metal syndrome. Can you explain what that is briefly, please? Yeah, so it's a funny thing that researchers notice that, that maybe you've noticed if you watch lots of sports and Olympics and things, which is that you know if you look on the Olympic winning stand, you know obviously the gold medalist is super psyched, smiling a lot. But there are two things that seem weird. One is that the bronze medalist is often just as psyched as the gold medalist, like smiling just as heavily, even though they got third place. But what's more shocking is the silver medalist, who just found out they're second place in the world, often doesn't look just less happy, but looks actively miserable. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're frowning, they're angry. And in recent times, as this has been picked up even more, you get silver medalists like Jocelyn Rolrock, who like threw her medal off in the middle of the stand. Medalists like Michaela Maroney, who was the famous one who made the kind of the face that turned into a meme on the stand where she kind of made this sort of snide face, like all angry. And then people photoshopped her into like the moon landing and all this stuff. Like silver medalists are just downright miserable, mm. even though they just won an Olympic medal. And so psychologists trying to figure out like what's going on. Turns out that it it's what they're doing is they're comparing their own happiness against this one like salient comparison point, this one reference point that makes them feel awful, the gold medalist. Like there's mm-hmm. one person up there that beat them and that person is so salient it makes them feel miserable. And so the podcast is really about, you know, that's Olympic medalists on the stand, but how often do we do that? with our salary or with our social life or with everything we go through, where objectively things are good, but we make ourselves feel miserable just because somebody else is a little bit better. So does Teddy Roosevelt have it right when he says that comparison is the thief of joy? 
Yeah, I think he was incredibly prescient. I don't know how many Olympic gold medalists he watched uh, from the you know the president chair, but yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's the thief of joy, but it's something we can't shut off. Like our brains are just built to do those comparisons. And so one of the things we teach about in the podcast is like, well, if you're going to do the comparison anyway, then try to do it right. You know, try to look to somebody who has a little bit less than you. Like right. try to find a comparison that doesn't make you feel so awful all the time. What are the evolutionary reasons that we have that cognitive bias to look at somebody with more? Well, we have lots of cognitive biases that don't necessarily make us happy. One is we just have a negativity bias in general. Like our minds are just drawn to all the bad stuff. And you can watch this yourself. Like scroll through a news feed and watch what piques your attention. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like, you know, wholesome this, wholesome that. It's like horrible thing happening. That will pop out. That's your negativity bias. And so we're constantly looking for reference points that make us feel bad. But there's something bigger, too, which is that, you know, it's probably good for evolution if we're constantly striving. You know, if if there's, you know, a, a big tree with lots of food out there that somebody else got, we should know about that. So next time that could be us. And that means we're constantly setting our sights on people who are doing better than us in all these different domains. You know, it might be good for getting the best tree evolutionarily, but it really sucks for our happiness. And so we can kind of train our brains to do a little bit better. We can consciously find these comparisons that make us feel a little bit better, or at least try to get rid of all the comparisons that make us feel awful. These things are not just individual biases, they're societal. And you see it in the media all the time where the news is, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And so we're, we're not only inclined to think that way, we are inclined to be led that way. And being aware of that is maintaining an awareness of that is difficult to do. I think that's right. And I think it's getting even trickier, right, with the fact that, you know, it's not just, you know, some editor at The New York Times that's deciding what things we see in a news feed. It's an algorithm that Facebook is providing or Instagram <laughs> is providing, right? And, and right. those algorithms don't care about your well-being. They just want your eyeballs to pay as much attention as possible. So you better believe they're going to find the best vacation picks, you know, the most salient negative things out there. Like, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, again, people's anxiety increases when they do things like look at a lot of Facebook and so on. You can do these uh, like randomized controlled designs, which are the sort of scientist's best strategy where you kind of randomly assign people to have more Facebook in their life or less Facebook. And what you find is people's well-being moves around accordingly. Like those news feeds that are picking up the most salient comparisons aren't making us happier. If anything, they're making us feel a little worse. Right. Let's talk a little bit specifically about money and the way this this one cognitive bias affects us. People would rather be they would rather have less money and be relatively well off compared to their peers than to have more money and to be less well off relative to their peers. That seems twisted to me. It's twisted. We'd give up money to be better than everybody else. We'd give up absolute purchasing power to be the best off in our office, say, have the best salary in our office, which in some ways is just absolutely mental, right? Like that we'd give up our own resources to one up other people. It just shows how deeply irrational some of these biases really are. How does that show up and how do we stay on top of that bias to keep ourselves from falling into this trap? Well, one of the things that we preach a lot in the Happiness Lab is just know that these biases are there, right? Because they're going to just be chugging along as we make our daily decisions and go about our life. If you know that they're there, then you can try to 
think about situations that might trip them up or not. You know, you could realize that, like, you know, seeing everybody's, you know, amazing vacation photos that my salary can't buy, like, that's not going to feel great. And so maybe I should just, like, avoid that part of the feed and not look at it, for example. Another is to just realize that we have these biases when it comes to money, that if we see other people who are richer than us, it's going to affect how we feel about our own salary. You know, so maybe don't tell a whole office what everybody's making because that's not going to make people feel good. It's going to make people feel bad. Like, find ways to pay a little bit more attention to other reference points. A few of these websites have these little things you could enter your salary and find out if you're in the 1%. And while not that many of us are in the 1% of the United States, you know, if you take a look at the real poverty that exists in the world, many of us are in the 1% when it comes to the world or a close, you know, top 10% or something. And I think that comparison can really remind people like, wait, hang on, like my comparison doesn't have to be some incredibly wealthy person with $50 million. My comparison could be, you know, the refugee that doesn't have a roof over their head tonight or doesn't have their family with them. And so I think when we start, we have the power to consciously control our reference points. And once we start doing that, we can start feeling a lot better. You compared some silver medalists who valued their prize to those who felt completely dissatisfied with their prize. What are the traits, the positive, the optimistic ones demonstrated relative to the others? Yeah, this is a move that we do a lot in the Happiness Lab where you know, really I'm, I'm thinking of this whole podcast as a journey to find people who are doing it right, right? Like, you know, most of silver medalists fall prey to this, but can I find ones that don't do this at all? And what strategies are they using? And, and in this case, I was lucky enough to talk with uh, figure skating legend Michelle Kwan, who was herself a silver medalist, but was heralded even back then as just being so magnanimous when she won this medal and she was like smiling. Even her fans were distraught that she lost the gold because she was kind of slated to win the gold but she she seemed fine and so I talked with her about what happened and and it was interesting she had this other reference point that made her not feel so bad and that was her sister her sister was also a young figure skating legend she didn't get as famous as Michelle and I think Michelle had that comparison in mind which was like she was kind of always doing better than her sister but also this idea that she didn't ever want her sister to feel bad about what was happening. And so Michelle thought, you know, the right way to do that is to not compare myself against other people. It's just to compare myself against myself. Mm-hmm. Like she used herself and her past successes as a reference point. And that's exactly right. You know, as long as we're beating what we used to do before, mm-hmm. like we're going to be improving, but not necessarily at the cost of feeling bad by comparing ourselves with other people. The other thing is that Michelle wasn't really doing it for a medal or some sort of outcome. She was skating just because she loved it. It was so beautiful in the podcast. She talked about what it felt like to skate over the Olympic rings and how she was crying. Like it just became clear that she just loved the moment and she loved the grind of it, right? Like she just loved skating. And I think that's a message for all of us because we fall into the silver medal trap when what we're going for isn't, you know, the kind of thing we get out of having a lot of money. It's just having a specific number. And when you have the specific number in mind, that can be less than somebody else's specific number. But it's hard to compare, you know, the happiness that you get from sitting on your nice porch that you worked for versus somebody else's nice porch. Like, you can pay attention more to the things that allow you to feel good rather than some objective number. And that was what Michelle did really well and kind of what I took away from that episode. You know, how often am I doing things just for the accolade at the end or just for the number at the end? That's not the best way to live if you want to maximize your well-being. Well, now you're just talking crazy talk, Lori. I no. mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're I clearly not. You're not American, Lori. What's going on here? <laughs> 
I'm a commie, commie professor. No, I mean, my students hear this and they think, you know, don't pay attention to the grade at the end, pay attention to the learning. Like, are mm-hmm. you crazy? And it's like, no, that's why we designed educational systems. It wasn't about the B plus. It was that I wanted you to learn math. And we can mm-hmm. we can get lost when we kind of get in that wrong way of thinking. Yeah, a lot of the people whose writing I enjoy and talk about success, they talk about focusing on process and not on outcomes. Because for one thing, that's all you can control. You know, Michelle Kwan couldn't control what the other skaters did. And one of them had, is it Tara Lipinski, who like mm-hmm. skated the, the greatest routine in Olympic history or something, even though Michelle Kwan had, had like a 99.9, yeah. Tara came out and got 100. She can't control that. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's two things. One is that, you know, you can control the process, but not the outcome. But it's also that social comparison doesn't work as well in the process. You know, it's hard to compare whether I love skating over the Olympic rings better than you love skating over the Olympic rings, Mm -hmm. because that's just not salient. But a gold medal versus a silver medal is easily compared. So kind of focusing on the journey means that bias that we have to compare with others, you just can't do it as well, Mm because there's just like no metric. And so we kind of escape this bias that keeps us trapped and feeling bad about ourselves by focusing on the journey. Why does winning the lottery ruin people's lives? I think the problem is like when we uh, we imagine what it would feel like to win the lottery, we kind of imagine the wrong things. You know, we imagine, you know, sitting in a bathtub filled with money and telling our bosses, you know, to go to hell. And the, we don't imagine what the consequences are going to be for the real people in our lives. You know, it might be hard for our buddy that we got to drink with to like still hang out with us at the same restaurants at that point. Like, we forget our family's going to come out of the woodwork and ask for money. You know, we forget that we're going to have tax paperwork that feels way more of a pain in the butt than the tax paperwork we pay for now. And this is a general problem, which is that we have this machinery that allows us to simulate what different circumstances would be like, but we often simulate wrong. You know, when we think of the lottery, we simulate all the good things, but we don't simulate any of the bad stuff, some of which is really profound, especially in terms of increasing our loneliness and these kinds of things. But the same is true for the bad stuff, it turns out. You know, when you simulate having a car crash or losing one of your limbs or losing a job or something like that, you simulate all the bad stuff. That's what's salient. But you forget that sometimes opportunities can come from it. And that's a very funny thing. It means because of these biases in our simulation machinery, we often get the consequences of real life circumstances, both seemingly good ones and seemingly bad ones, more wrong than we think. You interviewed a war veteran who had been horribly injured in an ATV accident, and his story is pretty compelling. Yeah, this is uh, J.R. Martinez, who, you know, deployed off to Iraq right after 9-11. You know, he's 19. He's just like, you know, super excited to help his country. And a few days into being in Iraq, his Humvee explodes and he's trapped in it for minutes while it's burning. And so at the end of that, he has, you know, third degree burns over three quarters of his body. He's in surgeries for, I think, about the next three years, basically skin grafts and all this stuff. He loses his 20s basically to hospitals. And you ask him, you know, would you change anything? Like, would you do that was so horrible? Would you do it differently? And what he says is no way. All of that was a blessing. Like that was a gift in my life, which is like not what people predict. But then he walks through it and he says, you know, that gave me meaning. It gave me a path that allowed me to have these scars that let me communicate in a way that's different. You know, people pay attention to me because of these horrible scars. And he used that in these wonderful ways. He became a motivational speaker. He wrote a book. He even wound up on Dancing with the Stars. Like, it just completely changed his life in a positive way. 
But if I ask most of your listeners, hey, would you want to deploy to Iraq and be in a Humvee and get, you know, your Humvee explodes and you have burns over three quarters of your body? We predict that would not just suck, but it would be like truly awful. It would ruin my life. And that's really profound. It means some of the most horrible things we can imagine happening to us can actually happen to us. And it won't be as bad as we think. But how much of that is just rationalization? I mean, it's the reverse game your brain is playing saying, and I think there's even a bias in like ownership of, I've, I've read about this thing that there's a bias in ownership of items where you place a higher value on an item that you already own. Is the same true with your life circumstances? Like evolutionarily, we kind of have to rationalize the bad that happens to us lest we slide off into this, it's too bad to live with syndrome. It is definitely true that some of this is rationalization, right? Like, but we forget that we have that power. Like, we forget that when things go bad, we're just going to rationalize it anyway. And the key is that if you look at the happiness that comes from rationalization, you know, like your your, your partner leaves you and you're like, oh, you know, he was never meant for me in the first place. You know, I really <laughs> love life without him. So, on. But if you look at the happiness that I get loser. from that. That loser, you know, I hated his family, all this stuff, right? But if you look at the happiness I get from those rationalizations, Mm -hmm. it is indistinguishable in terms of all the scientific instruments we have from the happiness I would get if that loser never left me, right? Like the simulated happiness we create from our rationalizations feels just as good as the real happiness we get from seemingly awesome events in our lives. Like researcher Dan Gilbert, who's a a professor at Harvard who I interviewed for this episode, he's fond of saying the happiness that you get when she says yes is just as good as the happiness you simulate when she says no. They're both equivalent. And when you realize that, it's incredibly powerful. You know, how often do we go through life like not taking risks because we're afraid of the bad consequences? You know, if rationalization is just going to kick in and make it good anyway, you know, maybe I should take the risk. You know, maybe I should Mm -hmm. be a little freer with how I make my decisions. Like maybe I'm holding myself back from fears about how I'm going to react. That would never come true because of how rationalization works. Is one of the lessons here to both not covet and not worry? I mean, because... The stuff you don't have that that you're going to get won't make you happy. The terrible things that might happen to you aren't going to ruin your life unless they kill you, in which point you don't have to worry about it anyway. We're just creating all our own happiness and stress in between our ears. I mean, I think that's what the research really suggests, right? I mean, especially when I look at my college students who are, you know, so worried about this one grade that's going to affect their whole life. And I can see, like, that's just not going to matter. Or as soon as you get that grade, what the data suggests is you're going to rationalize it. You know, the professor was stupid. I never liked English anyway, blah, blah, blah. And you're, <laughs> you're just going to be fine. And so we spend a lot of energy going after stuff we think is going to make everything great, mm-hmm. but it won't work the way we think. And avoiding stuff we're so terrified is going to ruin everything, but it's not going to. So. So we end up wasting a lot of emotional energy that could be spent on better stuff, kind of freaking out about stuff that's not really going to matter, ultimately. You talk about how one of the most important elements of living happy life is meaningful social connections, and yet many of us are programmed to avoid them. Yeah, this is a thing I see a lot. And and one of the biggest, especially when I teach my class, one of the biggest spots where I get pushback, because all the data suggests that happy people just spend more time with others. They spend more time with their friends and people they care about, but they also just physically spend more time around other people. But if you talk to most people, most people don't think that's the case. Most people think if I could just avoid my coworkers, avoid talking to people, make things as seamless as possible, my life would be better. And, and you also see this playing out in technology. 
technology. You know, every new store I go to has a different mechanism that I could order something online and not talk to a cashier, not talk to a barista. I just like, you know, walk in and grab my coffee because I've already paid for it through some app. But that's like these little moments in life where we get to kind of just have some small talk with somebody. We predict it would be better if we just got rid of that. But in practice, what the research shows is that we're wrong. We're actually happy having those little small conversations, even if we don't think that's the case. And so in the podcast, I interview this one researcher, Nick Epley, who does these really funny experiments on this where he forces people to talk to random, complete strangers. Like he forces people on a commute on their commute in Chicago to talk to the person sitting next to him on the train. He's the devil. He's the devil. He's the devil. Yeah. I mean, people people do it because you offer them a $10 Starbucks gift card and people will do anything. <laughs> They're like, yes, sure. I want it so bad. I'll talk to some random person. But but yeah, but no, people, people predict this is going to be not just kind of not good, but like actively awful. It's going to actively suck and be super awkward and so on. But when people really do it, they feel better. Their commute feels more positive. They actually get just as much work done. And the data suggests it's just as powerful an effect for introverts as it is for extroverts, which is like not what we predict. This is the one study that when I presented, I actually get pushback. I, when I first talked about this work uh, on Twitter, I, all these people were tweeting at me like, talk to strangers or you're crazy. Like, didn't your mom ever teach you anything? It was just like this barrage of people saying mm. I was wrong. And that's because our intuitions are so strong. Like even my intuitions are strong about this. Like, you know, I'm from the Northeast. Like I'm a Yankee girl at heart. Like I feel like talking to strangers on the street just will feel awful. Mm -hmm. But I know the research that that's just not the case. And so I try to kind of push myself even more to be social, even when I'm not feeling like it. And, you know, in, in practice, if I really think about how it makes me feel, it actually does make me feel better. When I left work, when I quit going to the office every day, I found myself to be extremely lonely. And that was uh, one of the many unanticipated consequences of bailing on my job. It was something I never even considered. So I just started spending a whole lot of time on chat roulette, and that made me feel a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I think the good news... That was a joke. That was a yeah, joke, yeah. Lord. <laughs> it, depends, it depends on which, which rooms in chat roulette, but um, <laughs> sure. you know, what, what you're showing to other people. But, um, but no, but I think this is, you know, this is a thing that we see in a lot of people's changing business lives, right? Like a lot of people are choosing to work at home, you know, which has all these benefits in terms of commute and so on. But we forget that that simple social connection with the people around us matters a lot. And, and this is what's really tricky. And, and one of the reasons I think the podcast is so important is we're designing systems and societies that, that are based on our intuitions about what's going to make us happy, right? Like, oh, I'll work from home. That'll, on mass, that'll kind of be better for my well-being. But we might be wrong. And if we have these incorrect intuitions, like it means we're going to design things that are making us feel worse and worse. You know, I think about this when I see my students in the dining hall with their big headphones, you know, like mm -hmm. they made a choice, like I'm going to sit there with my big headphones, listen to some, you know, I don't know, Diplo or something. It'll be great. Right. And then that's their prediction. But they're probably taking away something that really does matter for their well-being. We forget the opportunity cost. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. I mean, I think I might have scored slightly higher in some of my tests if I had headphones, noise-canceling headphones on in the library that kept me from being distracted by the person chewing gum next to me or the pretty girl walking in front of me. You know, I mean, That's right. there's, there's some balance there. That's right. I mean, it's not saying like drop all your alone time forever and talk to everyone, right? But on balance, like we probably want to err more on the side of social connection than we think we do. And that's even true for introverts. The data suggests that introverts have a worse prediction. Like they really predict it's going to suck. But when they actually do it, it's kind of just as good as it is for extroverts. Speaking of introverts, you almost step over the line in making some dangerous stereotypes about engineers that some people might find offensive. 
Well, these stereotypes actually came from uh, a, a source I didn't expect. We got to interview uh, musician David Byrne from the Talking Heads. You know, my, my 80s head music head almost like exploded mm-hmm. getting bet. to talk to him. Uh, but he's been pushing. I mean, he's kind of seen it in music, how we've moved away from being social with music. You know, even think of like concerts nowadays. Like, you know, if you go to a concert recently, it's not like, you know, everybody clapping in unison with the band. It's like everybody holding up a tiny screen that they're watching it through this tiny square. Mm. And like, you know, even as a musician, he says he looks out and he just sees a sea of like cell phones. He doesn't see like the people screaming and stuff. Mm. And then you think of like, you know, back in the 90s when you'd like meet a new person or go over to their apartment, first thing you do is like look at their CD case, right? And see what kind of music they listen to now it's like buried in people's spotify playlists right you just don't see it as much and so we're kind of getting less social with music but he's really worried we're getting less social with everything and his his kind of diss of the engineers as you mentioned is that he really thinks that you know engineers tend not to be the kind of people that are really as social at least that's our stereotype but they're the ones that are designing these algorithms they're the ones who are designing apps that let us you know buy our groceries without leaving the house or ever talking to anybody and they might want a kind of social interaction that might not work for everybody. Well, I think that's one of the things you mentioned, the, the lack of CD cases. You know, in the past, on a plane, you see somebody reading the new book. It's a clear, non-threatening way to open a conversation with somebody that lets them know, hey, you know, I'm at least smart enough to read, if nothing else. <laughs> yes, yes. It doesn't mean I'm not a psychopath, but I mean, I'm, you know, it, it's like an open social cue that you don't have anymore because I don't know what's on the other side of somebody's Kindle. And it's a bigger step for me to take to say, what are you reading? And then, you're, then you feel like you're being intrusive. Yeah. And and especially if people have the headphones on and they're sitting there, right? And this is this is one of the things that Nick Epley, this researcher, finds is that two reasons people don't talk to others is one, there's a startup cost, right? If you can see the front of their book, it's just easier. And mm-hmm. our technology has made that startup cost a little higher. But the second reason is that we look at other people and they, you know, they seem engrossed by their screens, right? Because nobody has a bored moment, say, in a line anymore. Like if I'm waiting in line for coffee, it's not obvious that I want to talk to anyone because two seconds into this line, I'm bored and I've whipped out my phone and I'm like scrolling through a Reddit Mm. feed or something, right? And so we look at other people like, oh, well, they probably don't really want to talk to us. They look so engrossed in their boring Reddit feed, right? And so we don't engage. And so... The technology we have, which quickly distracts us, means we're not as available for interacting with other people. And later in the podcast, later in the season, I interview this woman, Liz Dunn, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia. And she's Mm -hmm. been looking at what technology does to our social interactions. And she finds that when people have their phones out, even if they're not using them, but their phone is just present, they smile at the people around them 30% less which seems so striking, but you kind of get it. Like if your Mm. phone is there, you're just kind of distracted. You're just less available for a conversation. Yeah. Mm. It seems like it's a downward cycle, which is only going to accelerate because there's kind of no escaping unless you break the whole system. And that's what's really crazy. I mean, in the podcast, Liz has this analogy. She's like, you know, imagine, you know, because this comes up in, in, you know, it's one thing if it's I just don't talk to the people in line next to me near a coffee. But it's another if I don't like talk to my husband or my kids over the dinner table. Right. <laughs> and she, she but she uses this analogy of like, you know, imagine if to the dinner table I brought this big wheelbarrow that was full of, you know, printouts of all of my emails and printouts of every articles and like, you know, big audio CDs, like a CD player of every podcast in the history of the world. And it was just like pie like super every cat video on dvd that i could ever watch right and she's like if you had that wheelbarrow full of all that stuff it would be really distracting like you wouldn't be able to talk to your partner at the dinner table because you'd be like oh my god like let me look at these cat videos right she's like your brain knows that on the other end of that phone is all that stuff 
right? So it's going to just be slightly more distracted than you expect. And that's what's super scary. We've put these distracting wheelbarrows in the pockets of 6 billion people around the planet. And that's just what we have now. If you think about what that what that wheelbarrow is going to look like in five years time, in 10 years time, like it's going to be amazing if we ever have a conversation at the dinner table rather than play on our phones. And so I think, you know, now that we're a species that gets so much good stuff out of technology, we need to start thinking seriously about what the bad stuff looks like, too, and how to kind of balance in real life with all the amazing things we get online. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch it evolve. But let's get back to your happiness class. I want to get an A in your class, Lori. More importantly, (laughs) I want to earn an A by the way I live. What do I need to do to live a happier life? I think the top three tips uh, that you get from the science are first, be more social, even when you don't feel like it. Talk to people, make time for the people you care about. Just like try to fill your social calendar with as much real social connection as you can. Second thing is to be a little bit more other oriented. You know, these days we have a lot of this idea of self-care or kind of treat yourself. Research shows that that's just completely wrong. Like happy people are more other oriented. So think about when you kind of want to get happier yourself, think about what you can do to make others happy. It's counterintuitive, but it works. It works much better. And then the third thing, which sounds so cheesy and hippy dippy, is just to take more time to be present. Just time off that you're not kind of scheduled, but also just time to like notice and breathe and just be. I think people who do those three things tend to just statistically be much happier than the rest of us that don't. Okay, get specific though. Like what? <laughs> like I hear you're saying like broad categories of things, but like what's something yeah, I can so, do so today? Yeah, so get specific. So today you're going to walk out and head to the Starbucks and there's going to be a line and your instinct is going to be to pull out your phone and look at something stupid on social media or on the internet. Don't do that. If you have your headphones in, even if you're listening to podcasts, hit pause for a second, take your headphones out. And have a meaningful conversation with the person who's next to you. And really try to get deep. Don't just like, hey, the weather, like, ask them something interesting. You know, like, ask them, like, people have clothing on. They have stuff that you can comment on. Like, really try to dig deep. The next time you're feeling bad, you know, you're kind of feeling, you know, you've gone on social media and you're kind of feeling mopey. Think about what you could do for someone else. That could be like... Send your friend a text and see how they're doing or like, you know, call your family or something like explicitly do something nice for somebody else. If you're desperate, go on to one of like the many charity sites and just give like two bucks to somebody out there in need. Instantly, that will make you feel much better than if you tried to like take time for self-care. And then on the breathing side, like just whatever you're doing now, again, hit pause on the playlist and just take two seconds to like breathe. Just breathe in and just breathe out. And just like feel what it feels like to be you. And that sounds so cheesy, but it can be the reset that we need. Just five to 10 minutes a day of doing that, either in a a real meditation practice or just like taking time to breathe, can statistically improve your well being. Which part of your own advice do you have the hardest time following? Oh, all the things. I mean, I, I teach I teach about these bad intuitions because I have so many of them myself. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is that, you know, because I've now preached, you should talk to strangers all the time on all these things. And I get so much pushback for it. But but I still have a hard time doing it myself. And I was on a flight recently uh, and hadn't spoken to the, you know, the guy. It was like a flight to California. I was on this for like six hours. And this guy was sitting next to me for six hours. Perfectly reasonable, seeming human being. Didn't say a word to him. And I got an email from a journalist I'd been talking to, and she told me this wonderful story about how she didn't want to talk to this person on this plane next to her, but then they talked, and then they got to know each other, and now their kids hang out, and thank you so much, and I realized, like, 
I've just been sitting, I was playing for six hours and I haven't followed my own advice. And I was like, oh, okay. And I like talked to the guy and then it turned out to be great. So for me, it's a lot of them. I think the the ones that are biggest, I would have to say are kind of this time for breathing and mindfulness. Um, the class has been great. The podcast has been great, but it makes me really busy. And so making sure I have time to kind of be and be free is really tricky and takes a lot of active work. But I can tell that when I do it, I feel happier. How do you keep yourself on task there? One is I have this like automatic email where I explain to, you know, if people are asking me to do meetings or like talk or meet up, I often will send them this email. It's like, no, I can't do that. And the reason is like I preach about this power of time affluence, this idea of having free time. And if I say yes to every single one of these, I can't do it. So I know I kind of, I'll be frankly, I know I sound like a bitch, but like, and I like, it's like, you know, too elitist professor to not talk to you. But like, if I don't say no to this, I'm going to not protect my time and space. And people actually react pretty well to that. They're like, oh my God, I love that. Like, I'm going to use that myself. But but that takes a lot of active work. Tell me how you taught your students about time affluence. Oh, so that was particularly good because uh, so time affluence is just this idea that when we feel like we have free time, that can really improve our well-being. It's not the objective amount of free time we have. It's kind of a, a feeling. This is why if, you, if you're at work and some meeting gets canceled, you, know, you, you show up at the meeting like, oh, is that meeting? It's like, oh, it got canceled. And you realize you have a free half hour that it just feels amazing. Like you feel like you could learn a new language or like a new sport. You just kind of, it's only a half hour, but it just feels like so amazing. Um, but I, th- I thought this was going to be really ironic to teach my students about because they're so time strapped. One of the national surveys suggests that 87% of college students feel time overwhelmed like a lot of the time. Like most of their time feels time overwhelmed for 87% of students. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to contribute to this time famine. Let me give the students some free time. So students came to class on this day when I was supposed to be teaching them about time affluence. And I revealed when they arrived that there was no class that day. So I kind of gave them this canceled meeting phenomena. And what was amazing, I mean, the students freaked out. They One of them started playing like God's Plan by Drake and there was like music and everyone was really happy. But what was amazing was two students burst into tears when I announced this. And one of the students who burst into tears said it was the first free hour and a half she's had all semester. Um, which again, you know, these Yale students are extreme in some cases, but I think we can all feel like that where it's like, we just haven't had a free moment. And what we forget is often we caused that, you know, we chose to fill our schedules that packed, but you know, you can do that yourself. And so to your listeners, a practical way to do this is, you know, maybe not in your calendar this week, but if you have like an online calendar, go like a month from now and just carve out an hour that just says time affluence and put it in your calendar. And I promise when you get to that one hour that you've carved out for yourself, it will feel amazing. And the best part of that is you can always just cancel the time affluence and replace it with a meeting when it comes. Yeah, to t- you cross out email, you know. It's like, yeah, that's why the surprise move works best. What you really want is for some assistant or for some good friend of yours to put it in the calendar and then cancel it on you at the last minute. That's why it works more powerfully. That's funny. Lori, the new podcast is called Happiness Lab. Where can our listeners find it? You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you just Google the Happiness Lab, uh, you should get it. And hopefully it will help you in the way that the class has helped all my students. Is there any other place on the internet you'd like to direct their attention? The Happiness Lab podcast sites are fantastic. So anywhere on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want the more in-depth version, you can check out our online class, which you can get on Coursera.org. It's called The Science of Wellbeing. Uh, but my guess is for most of your listeners, you know, start with the podcast and go from there. If I take the Coursera course, do I get a Yale sweatshirt? <laughs> I can send you a Yale sweatshirt. How about that? That would be amazing. But you got you to gotta, you gotta follow all the tips. You got to achieve the happiness, not the grade. 
Lori, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Lori Santos of Yale and the Happiness Lab, best of luck with all your work in the future. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. What a treat to talk to Lori. I'm glad you listened to the whole episode because you're still listening, right? Really important stuff she talks about. And as I've re-listened to that, I was reminded of how good a fit it is with what I'm trying to explore here at Crazy Money. And we've made a lot of progress doing that in the, whatever, 21 months or whatever it is since that episode aired. Anyway, I'm grateful to Lori for her time, wishing her well in all that she does from this point on. Let's get to takeaways. Comparison is the number one reason you will never feel rich. Well, it's it's two reasons you'll never feel rich. Comparison and the hedonic treadmill. These themes come up over and over and over again. And if you think you're ever going to feel like, I've got it made, I've got so much money, most people don't ever feel that way. Comparison, the monkey that has all the cucumbers he wants and has no reason to worry, has a great life until that monkey, that capuchin, capuchin, whatever, however you say, whatever kind of monkey that is, until that monkey looks over at his pal who's enjoying a delicious, juicy grape. And I get it. I get it, monkey. I'd rather have a grape than a cucumber anyway. Cucumbers are gross. I mean, they have a lot of nutrients in them, but they're gross. I want that grape. Same way in life. You feel like you're rich until the neighbor gets a nicer car than you do, or until they take a nicer vacation, or if you're really super lucky and you can fly first class, you go, man, this is good, but I wish I could fly private. Wish I could fly private. Comparison will kill you. The hedonic treadmill is that other reason. You'll never feel rich because you get used to it. Secondly, let's get to the second one. You know, engage with others. Sometimes I've got to force myself to forget about all the important things that I've got to get done. I've got so many emails. I did this the other day. I've got so many emails to get done. I've got so much I want to accomplish with the podcast, with the comedy. And that might sound silly to somebody with a full-time job, but it's like I really get into my head and I try to focus on getting stuff done. And yet, whenever I complete that list of to-dos, more stuff just pops up. And I don't feel as good as I do when I just hang out with people and have a good time. And maybe we should all just relax a little bit. Lastly, along those lines, you know, engage with your college students. It scares me to death when I think about those statistics that Lori mentioned around anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. My kids are 10 and 11, so we're not quite at college age yet. But it scares me to think of how many of these kids, even at Yale, or maybe even especially at Yale, that anxiety rules the day and that social media isn't making it any better. Listen to your college students. Proactively seek them out and find out what's going on with them. I'm not surprised that at Yale, there's so much pressure on these students and they place so much of their self-worth on their accomplishment. I feel like I did that for a long time and that that was my way of medicating in the sense that when I got to high school, I really wanted to accomplish. And I think there's a very thin line between having a very good work ethic and needing to make good grades to know that you're okay, to see your name on the dean's list and think, oh, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like Those third-party accolades really are a form of medication, not the worst kind, but a kind of therapy. And so be aware of the role that accomplishment might be playing in the life of your college student. All right, we got lots more exciting stuff coming up on Crazy Money in the next few weeks. I'm so grateful to you for sticking around. If you have a minute, share this episode with three people that you know will love it. And by all means, do take a second to rate and review this week's episode. 
Hope you're having a wonderful day. Keep it going. Until we speak again, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.